Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today we're going to be talking about Sylvia Plath. Now, I started reading a uh, book recently by Elena Massey called All the Lives I Want, Essays About My Best Friends Who Happen to Be Famous Strangers, and she has an essay about Miss Plath in there titled also, All the Lives I Want, Recovering Sylvia. Um, There's actually a collection of her letters that has been published recently, and we'll talk more about that later. But I wanted to start with this essay because I think it is really intriguing and also a good example of what Miss Massey has to offer. She's quite an interesting author, and I really have enjoyed what I've read from her so far. Just don't end up doing a Sylvia Plath thing is not advice that is given to save lives. It is advice given to save face. It is not a warning against the pitfalls of a rotten marriage or the disappointment of publishing only a single novel. It is not intended to help anyone prevent isolation or despair. It is certainly not a thing people say to stop you from sticking your head in the back of an oven. No. Telling people not to do as Sylvia Plath did is universally understood as a good-natured suggestion that a writer not put too much of herself into her creations, lest she accidentally write about something as ordinary as being a woman. For feelings remain the burden and embarrassment of girls. They are not the stuff of art. Sylvia has become the most recognizable stand-in for the tedious, ill-advised 20th century confessional author. Despite her coming of age among a cohort of men, describing their own venereal disease as if the pustules themselves were matters worthy of the canon, it is Sylvia's interior life that is so often pointed to as a case of something crass and self-indulgent. To this day, even as Sylvia is long dead by her own hand, her cautionary tale is not about lives poorly lived, but about feelings too earnestly expressed. Nearly half a century after her death, we remain more interested in girls being kept palatable than being kept alive. The number of hands that have been wrung and fingers that have been wagged at girls who dare to give voice and name to their interior lives suggests that the written history of the world is absolutely awash in the stuff. But the female voice, and the girl's voice especially, is characterized mostly by the deafening silence it emits from the canon. To read the historical record without context suggests that female self-awareness was a genetic anomaly that emerged in the 18th century and remained exceedingly rare until the second half of the 20th century. Those who dare to document their lived experience as worthwhile are brave new girls indeed. As brightly as these girls shine, there remain wet blankets around every corner attempting to extinguish the flames in their hearts. They are dismissed as excessively feminine and juvenile, two words that mean the same thing in the hearts and minds of critics who would sooner praise a six-volume gaze at a Norwegian man's navel than consider the possibility that there are treasures in the hearts of girls. There is no girl that such critics have tried to extinguish more diligently than young Sylvia herself. In the years following her death, she has been accused of culpability in suicides that took place 50 years after her own, along with single-handedly ushering in the idea of suicide as glamorous by people who have apparently never heard of Ernest Hemingway or Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter remains that young women are 
easy to destroy and doubly easy to destroy if they are already dead. Fortunately, it is also historically the habit of young girls to practice witchcraft, and so the girls keep bringing Sylvia back to life. Young girls are smarter than they're given credit for and more resilient, too. They like what they like for good reason. They seek to build kingdoms out of their favorite people and things, and there is a certain subset of girls, even today, who have made Sylvia their icon-elect. The reputation of young girls for wearing their hearts on their sleeves is one that is discussed more often as unwittingly sharing too much information, rather than framing them as active agents making decisions on how best to publicly express themselves. Public derision is directed at girls wearing t-shirts of boy bands or one half of a best friend necklace pairing because we assume that such unsubtle devotion is the result of juvenile obliviousness rather than bold and certain admiration. There is intention behind both the words and the images these girls share in their modes of self-expression, intention that we overlook at the peril of our own understanding of how affections operate throughout a lifetime. At the convergence of adolescent admiration for Sylvia and the penchant to wear one's interests in literal and visible ways is a massive selection of Sylvia paraphernalia available for purchase online. I discovered this treasure trove by accident when looking for a canvas bag with a quote from Joan Didion on the online crafting marketplace Etsy. I found the bag in an online shop that featured loads of items inspired by Sylvia Plath's words and face. I conducted a search for her name that rendered 399 results. In contrast, Joan Didion uh, presented a single page of 11 crafts dedicated to the author. A search for Flannery O'Connor and all of her haunted glory netted 35 results. The closest iconic 20th century author I could search, Toni Morrison, trailed with 58 items. The clothes featuring Sylvia's image and words vary wildly in cost and quality, but they are a collection so diverse in color, design, and selected imagery and text that one could wear nothing but Sylvia-related garments for weeks before anyone detected the pattern. And those are my cats. I'm sorry. Back to Sylvia. In my initial search in the late fall of 2015, I discovered a pair of flats featuring her portrait, some poetry, and an image of her tombstone. And then there are the necklaces. Oh, praise God, the necklaces. There are brass lockets on long chains and short typed quotes in literary serif fonts protected by a layer of glass. And there are small portraits of Sylvia in the style of a cameo. I imagine these pieces strewn across young necks throughout the world, standalone best friend necklaces for the kind of girl who prefers the company of ghosts. Beyond clothing and accessories, one could build a whole aesthetic around Sylvia trinkets, and I'm sure there are girls who have. Their bodies and pencil cases are transformed to shrines for the poet whose words helped them exhale at last what it felt, what it meant to feel in the world as a girl. There is even a criminally under, unrepresentative doll meant to be Sylvia. It would be nice to believe that the women who make and purchase these devotional items are simply unaware of the disdain Sylvia has incurred from the literary establishment, but as a mere matter of probability, I have my doubts that they are. Sylvia Plath's remarkable position today is only partly due to the brilliance of her writing, is as dull a way to start a book as it is an obvious one, but it is how Marianne Eglund 
begins claiming Sylvia Plath, the poet, as exemplary figure. Of course, a beautiful, brilliant, mentally tortured, and dead young woman is going to be made something more special in the public imagination than a plain and neurotypical one who succumbs to heart failure in old age. Though Egland admits in her final chapter that this mythology is more about how Sylvia has been used than how she herself lived or created, the narration at times makes Sylvia's actions appear as if they were intended to be the spark to light some greater movement. Killing herself in the same year that The Feminine Mystique, 1963, was published by Betty Friedan, and leaving behind two small children and a manuscript of outstanding poems, Plath seemed to confirm romantic notions about the poet and to demonstrate the difficulties women artists had of surviving in a, man, in a man's world, she writes. In other words, it was stunt marketing by asphy asphyxiation. In the New York Rebu Review of Books, Terry Castle goes so far as to blame Sylvia for the suicide of her son Nicholas in Alaska 46 years after her own death. The facts that Alaska has the second highest rate of suicide of any U.S. state and that mental illness is widely accepted as genetic were immaterial, apparently, in the face of an opportunity to use the turn of phrase, Lady Lazarus caught up with him at last. It is clever and spooky indeed, but it is hardly fair. That Castle uses the same piece to accuse Sylvia of making a sensation still, sometimes among bulimic female undergraduates, is but one of the scores of dismissals of life-threatening illness among young women as frivolous lifestyle habits. I was such an undergraduate, unknowingly worshipping at the altar of Sylvia before I formed the bridge in my mind from her work to her face and legacy. I regret not having been one of her apostles as a girl, but I am glad to have found her when I did, in my late twenties and on a mission of almost evangelical zeal, zeal to make the emotions of young women not just visible in the literary world, but to make them essential components of it. Sylvia's work had lingered in my periphery as it did for many girls who had not been assigned the bell jar in school, but who managed to find her image sprinkled across the sadder corner of the women's internet. I began frequenting anorexia and bulimia blogs in the late 1990s in the hopes of catching one of the few diseases that people actively covet. In an age before ubiquitous digital photography, these online shrines to eating disorders were home to meticulously curated collections of images scanned from magazines alongside quotes that ennobled the disease with a sense of almost divine purpose. A quote from Sylvia's poem in Plaster made frequent appearances. She doesn't need food. She is one of the real saints, it read, ripped brutally from its context in a poem about battling a personified disorder, but ultimately starving the sickness to its own death. One of the most famous images of Sylvia served as the avatar for many users of the blogging platform LiveJournal, which I followed in the early 2000s, along with images of Twiggy and Brigitte Bardot. I am glad that I found Sylvia by accidentally falling down a hole of her words alone, unstrangled by their troubling literary legacy. I was searching for a clever turn of phrase I knew was hers to quote, a man, to, quote to a man when I was 29 years old. I didn't know if it came from a novel or from her diaries, so I was looking her, up her quotes on the website Goodreads. 
The site is a helpful cheat sheet for those of us who appear to have read far more than we have. It features book reviews, quotes, and synopses of books, and also serves as an odd consortium of legitimate bibliophiles and bizarrely resentful readers alike. Somehow, I missed the bell jar in my formal education, but saw it on enough bookshelves at friends' homes to intuit that it was something I needed to eventually find time for on an extracurricular basis. But where even prolific authors sometimes have over 30, this would be unremarkable but for the fact that she wrote only one novel and a handful of poetry collections. This is a function of the site's more democratic tools. Users can submit quotes and vote on them so that they are arranged in order of their popularity. Just as her Etsy story confirmed, for a sad woman dead quite young, she had certainly made an impression. With more than 10,000 votes, the quote at the very top had nearly double the votes of those of the two runners-up that dwindled in the range of 5,000 or so. It read, I can never read all the books I want. I can never be all the people I want and live all the lives I want. I can never train myself in all the skills I want. And why do I want? I want to live and feel all the shades, tones, and variations of mental and physical experience possible in my life. And I am horribly limited. I found myself unmoved by the sentiment and reluctantly disappointed in the readers who had flocked to the site to vote it into the top spot. I had such high hopes for these devoted girls. Sure, I too have been frustrated by my own finitude at times. I have mourned the doctor and the movie star and the teenage witch I never became. I can't speak any foreign languages as well as I'd like to, nor can I juggle or play the piano. But when it comes to living and feeling all the shades of life, I have had quite enough of the ups and downs of mood and tone and would be perfectly content for dull tranquility to replace the sound and speed of chaos. Sylvia and I were off on the wrong foot. Holding the honor of second place was the quote, if you expect nothing from somebody, you are never disappointed. This had always been something of a personal motto, and so I felt back on track to liking this woman the girls couldn't stop talking about. In third was... Kiss me, and you will see how important I am. This was the kind of thing I wished I had said to a man when I was much younger, had I been in possession of some shred of that conversational boldness. I developed a literary tongue only after such darling proclamations would have long been inappropriate. I immediately bought a necklace bearing the quote from a store on Etsy. I have never worn it, but I have photographed it lying in my palm on more than one occasion. I finally found the retort I was looking for on the fifth page of quotes. It read, No day is safe from news of you. And it comes from Plath's poem, The Rival. I planned to use it in the event of receiving a text message from a man I'd been dating for five months who had disappeared unceremoniously on Christmas Eve despite prior plans and his knowing that I would spend my favorite holiday alone were he to cancel. The line was meant to be a clever way of saying that I had been following his social media accounts knowing full well that despite the existence of the term ghosting that we now have for abandoning romantic interests without a word, he was, quite unfortunately, not at all dead. I didn't use it on him when he, when he reemerged, but I was grateful for having made the excursion to the pages and pages of Sylvia quotes. Further excavation brought me a wealth of gems about love and loss and death. They have all the wit of Dorothy Parker and the devastating brutality of Virginia Woolf. 
Yet somewhere along the line, the literary establishment lost sight of the genius because they saw it as too wrapped up in girlishness, a niche interest that half the world endures. I fell in love with Sylvia in that scroll of disjointed quotes and fell with an enthusiasm I had not felt since college when I discovered the especially unforgiving love songs of the magnetic fields and the renewed rage of a mid-career Fiona Apple. Sylvia's words were reflections on love and doubt and suffering and the brutal nexus where they all come together in a tender corner of the human heart. You are a dream. I hope I never meet you. But they were also nonsense and melodrama without their context. I have suffered the atrocity of sunsets. I went through page after page until the quotes came to an end, and throughout my read I tried to put together the bell jar in something like order, only to realize it is a chronicle of disorder. When their origins weren't labeled, I wondered which quotes came from her poetry and which from her diaries, trying to detect either her bright-eyed teen years or the shadow-stricken days that drew her toward the light at the back of the oven. I wondered if ovens had lights in the back in 1963. Her words made me want to see her face, but there was only one image that dominated the Google image search, Plath in a half-grinning portrait in which she seems confidently unimpressed. Her hair hangs just below her shoulders and is pinned to the left side of her head. She's wearing a cardigan of some sort. She looks like she's in possession of either a brand new secret or a very old one, and it's how I've seen many women writers look at readings when they've been asked asinine questions by men. But knowing this image well, I searched for more images. I turned to Tumblr, where enterprising young people have reliably excavated archives of lesser-known pictures to bring texture and time to the lives of those who are long dead. These young curators did not disappoint. I found her unflattering school portrait, better left to the dustbin for such a beauty. I found her wearing a white pillbox hat as she gazes at her interview subject, Elizabeth Bowen, during an assignment for Mademoiselle. There was an image of her lying on the beach with her eyes closed, bronzed and grinning in a strapless white swimsuit. It seemed Plath was always wearing swimsuits, even in the absence of any evidence of nearby water. In another photo, she wears a modest two-piece swimsuit and holds a dandelion as if it were a pet, the note reading that this was taken in 1954, during her platinum summer. In another, she wears a black halter top and takes a drink of what I can only assume is an adult beverage. She appears as mostly an outline blur on the cover of the Colossus and other poems, bedecked in a scarf or cape of some kind, and she is a smile incarnate on the cover of her unabridged journals. For all the unruliness of her heart, she was certainly a compliant subject for photographers. I write of these photographs as if I found them in rapid, orderly succession on Tumblr, but anyone familiar with the platform knows that its treasures do not come that way. Instead, these images are tucked into the folds of the infinite scroll that a reader finds when entering Sylvia Plath in the search bar. It is overwhelmingly the same quotes from Goodreads given new life in bigger, more artful fonts. I hoped hoped to find rhyme and reason in them, an evident winner like uh, the one on Goodreads, one quote to rule them all. But on Tumblr, each girl who posts about Sylvia Plath has her own kingdom to run. She cannot necessarily be bothered with choosiness, but when she can be bothered to choose, she will be meticulous to the point of obsession about making the correct choice. 
Many of the girls I find on Tumblr reblog Plath quotes mechanically alongside a mountain of melancholy content. They are found with photos of wilted flowers and tattoos and courier new, and the occasional textual allusion to glorifying anorexia. These girls create heaping monuments to pain and subsequently gain impressive followings that suggest the world is every bit as heartbroken as we've suspected all along. Others are more careful curators, and they share less often, but more thoughtfully. Sylvia quotes appear alongside photos of Virginia Woolf with her own words scrawled over them and gifts of Fiona Apple writhing uncomfortably in her own sexualized body. The suffering is palpable in these media. Regardless of the format, it bears the fingerprints of femininity thrown off balance. With all that smiling she did in photos, she struck me as the kind of woman who didn't want to cause a lot of trouble except when she was ready to cause nothing short of a disaster. There are occasional photos of Sylvia's books themselves, and even more of books open to particularly moving passages by her, a post-habit to which I myself must also confess when I cannot resist transmitting a cutting word from Simone Weil or Flannery O'Connor or passages from that lonely grouch, grouch of a poet, R.S. Thomas, into the digital world. The open books feature in orderly stacks on white backdrops and on dirty sheets. There are also a number of tattoos of quotes from Sylvia's books, her words etched forever onto female skin and preserved, at least for now, on the internet for the masses to admire, judge, and envy accordingly. There is even an entire Tumblr account devoted to her words on skin, Sylvia Plath, Inc. Many of the tattoos featured there are still surrounded by inflamed skin, indicating that these were photographed as brand new markings and that their owners urgently wished to share with the world how their bodies and her words had become one. A desire are the things that will destroy me in the end, a collarbone reads. A ribcage cries out, I am terrified by this dark thing that sleeps in me alongside a flower. I find a thigh bearing the words. The claw of the magnolia drunk on its own secrets, asks nothing of life. Like the t-shirts on Etsy, the, the tattoo designs are impressively diverse in their colors and placements and the substance of their messages. But I find myself returning over and over to an image of skin bearing the haunting finale of the bell jar. I am, I am, I am. Sometimes it is unpunctuated. Sometimes it is etched next to an ideographic heart. Other times it is etched onto a realistic rendering of the heart as human organ. Sometimes it is accompanied by its preceding line. I took a deep breath and listened to the old brag of my heart. I struggle to think of any line of thinking more linked to being a socialized female than to consider the declaration of simply existing to feel like a form of bragging. But that, of course, is the plight of the feeling girl, to be told again and again that her very existence is something not worth declaring. To read Sylvia's diaries is to bear witness to an urgent catastrophe. Though the entries are not marked with dates, it quickly becomes clear that the days she chronicles are eventful only insofar as her feelings are events themselves, and that they are. New boys have approximately the same weight as the whole wide world, yet they have taken the liberty of taking up much more than their physically allotted spaces with larger gestures and excessive speech. They, they suffocate girls' spaces, their intrusions of volume and flesh lingering long after they've left. 
In the air was the strong smell of masculinity which creates the ideal medium for me to exist in, she confesses, a rare and raw admission of how much we sometimes crave the opportunity to crawl into the arms of men who cannot or choose not to love us as fully as we do them. Sylvia describes the fickle affections of men in her early years in one-dimensional terms, speaking in the absolutist language that would come to characterize her observations of life in early adulthood. She writes, Being born a woman is my awful tragedy. From the moment I was conceived, I was doomed to sprout breasts and ovaries rather than penis and scrotum, to have my whole circle of action, thought and feeling rigidly circumscribed by my inescapable femininity. Sylvia does not have just best friends. She has the absolute best friends that history has ever produced. She is something vital, she writes of a dear friend, imbuing the girl not just with significance in her life, but with life-giving properties no less critical than the beat of a heart or the shine of the sun. Her experience of love has similarly high stakes. What did my fingers do before they held him? What did my heart do with its love? Plath experiences first love as a reincarnation, unable to remember a time when her body had any purpose but the love before her. These are not expressions of hyperbole so much as they are expressions of gravity. These diaries are an exercise in the belief that the ordinary female life is no ordinary thing at all. When she considers what it means to be a young woman, she feels the full weight of both its peculiar fragility and its attendant lack of mercies. Sylvia knows full well that the world had neither her particular intellect nor her body in mind when it was designed. At eighteen, she berates herself for the urge to gaze inward, but she cannot find a reprieve from her own fascination. I am a victim of introspection. If I have not the power to put myself in the place of other people, but must be continually burrowing inward, I shall never be the magnanimous creative person I wish to be. Yet I am hypnotized by the workings of the individual, alone, and am continually using myself as specimen. Sylvia was an early literary manifestation of a young woman who takes endless selfies and posts them with vicious captions, calling herself fat and ugly. She is at once her own documentarian and the reflexive voice that says she is unworthy of documentation. She sends her image into the world to be seen, discussed, and devoured, proclaiming that the ordinariness or ugliness of her existence does not remove her right to have it. You might be so very good and generous if you could only relinquish that nagging sense that you matter at all, the world tells them now, and told Sylvia then. The ongoing act of self-documentation in a world that punishes female experience that doesn't aspire to maleness is a radical declaration that women are within our rights to contribute to the story of what it means to be a human. I look to the girls and women who adore Sylvia on Tumblr and mourn that I had no such home for self-expression and mourn for a world that won't allow itself to behold the richness of their lives as the art of ingenues rather than the nuisances of adolescence. Clicking through the profiles of girls who share Sylvia-related images and words, it is not uncommon to find images of self-inflicted wounds displayed through carefully selected filters. Reds are turned up and backgrounds are darkened. There is a young Parisian whose scroll is a well-curated collection of literary quotations relating to the discomfort of being human. Another describes herself as having a rebel soul and a whole lot of gypsy. 
her account, a gallery celebrating literature and landscapes meant to break the heart. These young women awaken a maternal impulse in me, and at some points I get close to reaching out to encourage them to get care. I realize this is both invasive and unproductive at first, but I later realize that this is an underestimation of their capabilities. The very act of sharing the images is a way of seeking care, not as cries for help or as declarations of their suffering. Their blood is proof that something is alive in them. They are making art of their pain. Many experience these platforms as communities where their pain is acknowledged in gentle, more reassuring ways than those available from family and in-person peers. Now I know what loneliness is, I think. Momentary loneliness, anyway. It comes from a vague core of self, like a disease of the blood, dispersed throughout the body so that one cannot locate the matrix, the spot of contagion, Sylvia wrote. I wish I could tell them to stop hurting themselves and have them miraculously listen. I also want to tell them that I am so happy they found one another instead of finding the back of an oven. I want to tell them that the contagion source is not dispersed in the blood but in fissures in the heart. These fissures do not course through the body and require an aggressive medicinal annihilation. They require the tender touch of one willing to deal with the brokenness of the flesh, and they require the trust of the wounded heart's owner to know that their insides can and should be beheld. I want to call out to the girls who repeat Sylvia's poisonous directive. I must bridge the gap between adolescent glitter and mature glow. This is a fallacy, a lie intended to kill the spirits of girls so that they might become what we have come to expect of women. It is telling that among the ranks of quotes on Goodreads and in the bottomless scrolls on Tumblr, it is words from Sylvia's earlier works in her late teens and early twenties that are the most popular. The girls may repeat her longing to grow from glitter to glow, but their affections favor glitter overwhelmingly. Glitter is the unbridled multitudes of shining objects that have no predictable trajectory and no particular use but their own splendor. A glow is contained. Its purpose is to offer a light bright enough that those who bear it will cast a shadow, but not so bright that their features will come fully into focus. Never surrender your glitter sounds like the cliché battle cry of a cheerleading coach or a pageant mom, but I still find it a suitable message for young girls. I also want to show them a line of Sylvia's poem, Stings, written from the point of view of a bee. They thought death was worth it, but I have a self to recover, a queen. In the end, it was Sylvia who thought that death was worth it indeed, but her disciples now can and should have the chance to feel like queens. The thing about that beloved quote I was so originally unimpressed by, about all the lives Sylvia wanted, is that it continues into a more tender consideration of what it means to be fully who we are. She acknowledges that though she is limited, she is not incapacitated or wounded. She writes, I have much to live for, yet unaccountably I am sick and sad. Perhaps you could trace my feeling back to my distaste at having to choose between alternatives. Perhaps that's why I want to be everyone, so no one can blame me for being I. The girls who adorn their persons and bedrooms and websites with the work of Sylvia Plath, who allow her words and images and sounds to give shape to their lives, are her legacy. Defying the command that they not end up like Sylvia, they document their lives in details that are always personal, and they do so in kingdoms they've crafted and breathed meaning into themselves. 
The ways they tag and arrange their posts are signals in the night, reaching out to others enduring suffering and nonsense in a world that tells them their hearts are burdens rather than treasures. They are good witches in the wilderness and sages and romantics regardless of any present romance. And they know they are not drawn to the bulb at the back of the oven, but by the flare signals sent out by their fellow travelers. They are flashes of light and recognition, momentary reflections of the sun onto a shred of glitter. But they are something vital nonetheless. Oh, I really enjoyed that essay and it made me want to look more into Sylvia Plath. The rest of her collection, what I've read of it so far, is also very good. I will, of course, be posting a link in the show notes. Now, as mentioned earlier, there is a collection of Sylvia Plath's letters that has been published recently, and I have a couple of articles to share with you today. The first is from The Telegraph by Anita Singh. Fifteen passionate love letters from Sylvia Plath to Ted Hughes are to be published for the first time, throwing new light on one of the most famous marriages of the 20th century. Plath wrote the letters when she was studying at Cambridge University, fresh from their honeymoon. They had been apart for a few days, a separation she described as this huge whistling hole in my guts and heart. Do you hear my cat? That's my cat, if you can hear that. Um, Her love for him spills from the pages. I'm all for you, and you are that world in which I walk, she wrote. I think if anything ever happened to you, I would really kill myself. The letters have been in the private collection of Frida Hughes since her father's death in 1998, unknown even to Plath scholars. She has chosen to release them for inclusion in the Letters of Sylvia Plath, a comprehensive collection of the writer's correspondence from childhood onwards, published by Faber later this month. In the foreword to the book, Frida Hughes writes that her parents are as married in death as they once were in life. Over the course of three weeks in October 1956, Plath wrote daily to her dearest Teddy, or, as she sometimes called him, her dearest Teddy Ponk. The couple were living apart as Plath had begun her second year at Cambridge University, leaving Hughes in Yorkshire, where they had visited his parents after a blissful honeymoon in Spain. They had wed secretly in June after a whirlwind courtship, and Plath worried that the authorities would withdraw her Fulbright scholarship if they learned she was married. Fierce outpourings of love are mixed in with the domestic detail of student life. Trips to the laundrette, plans for tutorials, breakfasts of toasts and Nescafe, suppers of cream crackers and cheap wine. I drank the last of the vinegary Chilean burgundy and I love you she wrote, the night she arrived back in Cambridge to an empty room. She told him, I love you more than the whole gibbering world which owes its existence and worth, if it has any, to your being in it. And I miss you like hell because somehow I can't bear being with people who aren't you. As the days went by, her longing for him became almost unbearable, and the language foretold darker times ahead. I honestly believe that by some mystic uniting we have become one flesh. I am simply sick, physically sick, without you. I cry, I lay my head on the floor, I choke, hate eating, hate sleeping, or going to bed. I am living in a kind of death in life. You must scold me, beat me, help me. This gift of creative passion I've somehow been blessed with is now, ironically, turning in on itself and blighting me. Teddy, I love you so so it is simply murdering me. 
The tone changes when she speaks excitedly of their respective careers, encouraging Hughes in his work and sharing the wonderful and incredible news that her poems are to be published. Hughes has been demonized by devotees of Plath, who blame him for her suicide. In February 1963, aged 30, she killed herself as her young children lay sleeping in the next room. But in the foreword, Frida Hughes writes, It has always been my conviction the reason my mother should be of interest to readers at all is due to my father because, irrespective of the way their marriage ended, he honored my mother's work and her memory by publishing Ariel, the collection of poems that launched her into the public consciousness after her death. He, perhaps more than anyone, recognized and acknowledged her talent as extraordinary. Without Ariel, my mother's literary genius might have gone unremarked forever. Although, by ensuring her work got the attention it surely deserved, my father also initiated the castigation that was bound to him, that was to hound him for the rest of his life. Earlier this year, a series of confidential letters from Plath to her psychiatrist, Dr. Ruth Barnhouse, came to light, in which she alleged that Hughes was physically and psychologically abusive in the last year of, years of their marriage. Hughes's widow, Carol, said the claims were as absurd as they are shocking to anyone who knew Ted well. Those letters are the subject of legal action over their rightful ownership. A second volume will cover the marriage and the years leading up to Plath's death. Volume 1 includes hundreds of letters from Plath to her mother, Aurelia, to school friends and college roommates, and to the men she dated before falling in love with Hughes. The book begins with a letter to her father, Otto, written in colored pencil when she was seven years old. It ends with her writing to Peter Davidson, Davison, editor at Atlantic Monthly. I am convinced, she tells Davison, that there will be a market for a woman lyric poet. Hearing some of her words, um, especially the optimistic tone at the end where she is convinced that the world has a place for a woman lyric poet, uh, makes me curious to read this volume. But it also brings to mind another article I recently read from um, The Guardian by Kathleen Allen Conway. Unfortunately, this is a little darker. On the U.S. cover of Sylvia Plath's Collected Letters, a volume out this week that contains mostly unpublished letters by the poet between the ages of 8 and 24, is a picture of her taken in December 1955. She's walking outside somewhere in Cambridge, bundled up in a coat, and has a thoughtful smile. The U.K. edition went for a very different depiction of Plath, however. A full-color photo of her on a beach in a bikini, blonde and beaming, a visual antithesis to the ambitious intellectual poet. This is not the first time Plath's image has been used to make her appear trifling or superficial. In 2013, Faber, the publisher of the bikini lead US, U UK edition, released a much derided anniversary edition of The Bell Jar that showed a woman checking her makeup on the cover. Whatever symbolism intended was overwhelmed by the proto-chiclet design. A story of an attempted suicide and subsequent hospitalization is somewhat undermined by the focus on matching lipstick and nails. Johnny Panic in the Bible of Dreams, a collection of her prose, is also bedecked with the bikini shot, which the Telegraph also recently used to illustrate a story about her love letters. Plath's volume in the Faber Poet to Poet series, in which a poet selects worth 
work by another they admire, sees her estranged husband Ted Hughes's choices illustrated with a photo of Plath semi-undressed, and the biography Mad Girl's Love Song by Andrew Wilson is covered with a blonde, bare-shouldered Sylvia in profile, cropped to suggest a nude nymph. These are the images that publishers think best represent Plath, an internationally recognized poet and novelist, an icon, an alleged victim of domestic abuse, a single mother, a person with mental illness, and a person who killed herself. Why is her work so heavy with symbolism and myth which documents the frustrating consequences of transgressive womanhood marketed with so little thought and respect? In answering this question, it is hard not to be cynical about the British literary establishment and its continued protection of Hughes. In the wake of her death, Team Ted went into overdrive to construct an image of Plath as a crazy, spoiled woman. Bitter Fame, the only authorized biography of Plath, which included so much interference from Hughes's sister, Olwyn, that author Anne Stevenson eventually referred to it as a work of dual authorship, includes two appendices that eviscerate Plath, presumably to undermine or negate any praise that remained. This is not a hysterical presumption. In her book, Sylvia Plath and the Mythology of Women Readers, scholar Janet Badia writes about tropes meant to disparage Plath's fans, especially the young female readers among them, as uncritical consumers. This, she argues, has dictated the terms of Plath's reception by the literary establishment and by popular media. The curation of her image plays a role. Perhaps the rationale is that pictures of Smiley Plath counterbalance the darkness in her work, lending extra tragedy to her illness and death. But this kind of correction is not made for male authors, no matter how dark their writing or interior lives. Consider Plath's fellow confessionalists. Robert Lowell had manic depression and was hospitalized at McLean in Massachusetts, where Plath was also treated in 1953, and which she immortalized in her novel The Bell Jar. All his covers see him posed studiously, writing, reading, crucially able to keep his clothes on. Meanwhile, Anne Sexton, who studied under Lowell with Plath and also killed herself, receives the bathing suit treatment with her selected poems. Presenting female writers as sexualized and frivolous diminishes their intellectual credentials, tarnishes their work as slight, not to be taken seriously. Plath's poems were visceral and impolite. Her novel was about madness. The image that best represents a writer of her range and talent is not, as she wrote about in her poem The Applicant, the living doll on biographies and collections and broadsheets everywhere you look, forever emblazoned on our consciousness as a 22-year-old bronzed blonde in a bikini. Plath only had blonde hair for about three months. She documented the phase in her short story Platinum Summer, Another Romana Clough, in which her protagonist dares to be a woman for a change, not a walking library stack. But she discovers that the worldly platinum blonde type is incongruent with the true self she eventually reasserts by, to, by returning to her natural chestnut brown hair color. In a letter to her mother on 27 September 1954, Plath admitted her brown-haired personality is more studious, charming, and earnest. She was happy she went back to her natural hair color, preferring to look demure and discreet. We know brunette Sylvia was how Plath wanted to present herself. 
So while the new collected letters boasts that it is unabridged, without revision, and presents the author speaking directly in her own words, selling an author who liked her studious and demure self with a cheesecake bikini shot undercuts any claims of dedication or authenticity. Amen. Now, I'd love to be able to read you an excerpt from the letters of Sylvia Plath, but unfortunately, it doesn't appear to be published in the United States until October 17th, so we'll just have to wait for that one. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you have questions or ideas or a story you'd like to share, please feel free to email bluestockingpod at gmail.com. La, 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 La 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 la